0: Hey there, listeners. Thank you for pressing play on a new episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. My name is Phil, and in this episode, I was joined by our executive director, Jim Grout, and Chip Wood. Chip is the co-developer of Responsive Classrooms and is the author of Yardsticks, Child and Adolescent Development, Ages 4 to 14. So let's play out this music and get into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Chip. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, the taking the time to do this with us, but also your connection to us at High Five. Briefly, uh, tell our listeners who you are and what type of work you're currently engaged in.
1: Uh, that when you're asked the question "Who you are,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, people uh, E. Cummings used to say, "We're a what do you do society," and, and he was onto something, I think. As a poet, certainly, um, so, when I hear that question, I always try to reflect on uh, who have I become. Uh, I certainly uh, I feel that I've always been uh, a a person from, from the time of my youth who uh, was very playful, uh, had an imagination, enjoyed being in the out of doors, spent a lot of time in tidal pools and with my sister and uh, naming every hermit crab in sight uh, by name. Uh, and those kinds of um, adventures uh, in my work as a, uh, as a kid Uh, if you will, the play being our work, led me to uh, work with children most all of my life. So I'm someone who spent time in camps and as counselor and camp director, and then had the opportunity to spend a lot of time directly in uh, social work during the civil rights era in the 60s. And, uh, and think about the future of those the children who were growing up in that, in that era and the work that was going to be ahead of me after I had a, a degree in community organization from Howard University in Washington, DC. What I would do with that, um, working in Washington and New York during the, the 60s and following that to, to, to become a school principal in uh, the 70s, in Massachusetts, a friend of mine uh, brought me up to teach in a MAT program at UMass. And I brought all of my community organization bags with me, realizing that, in fact, uh, when you were able to use those skills in leading a school, uh, really, it was more important than anything they taught in the schools of education. Uh, which was that you learned how to organize a community uh, and to make it effective and to be a community where play was important and so I'm a person uh, who I am just to say that part of it uh, somebody who likes to, is curious likes to be trying things out and I haven't lost that uh, I sometimes say I have this five year old inside me that won't give up. <laughs> that that's probably because my parents named me chip wood which was about the corniest nickname you could get and pay your price in the on the playground as a child but uh yeah i'm really grateful to still have that play orientation at this stage of my career
0: Even the statement that you made early on around the difference between the who are you versus the what you do, I, I love that mindset in itself because I think that we probably all experience that in the work that we do. It's very challenging to sum up, give the elevator speech of what we do. So what we tend to lean on is who we are and the reasons why. And that gives some idea around uh, what why we're doing the work we're doing rather than what the work is that we're doing. You also... Reference a lot of things that I think that demonstrate for you also an innovative kind of mindset. Like there was, there was newness to some of the stuff that you're creating. One of those uh, that people may be familiar with is responsive classroom. Speak a, a little to that and how that began for you. Where was the inspiration from it? And what do you think the impact of, doing, of creating that was?
1: The short answer to that is that When I was principal in the 70s in this school in Western Massachusetts, actually, I had two buildings five miles apart. I was a teaching principal. I taught full time, and I had Wednesday afternoons off to be principal to show you how things have changed. (laughs) During that time, I I got a flyer in the school mail about uh, a workshop on developmental understanding of children from the Gazelle Institute in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. It was being done in somewhere. On four ninety five, I believe, Massachusetts. So I went for a day to this workshop. and it 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 focused me again on the that schools were misorganized. Um, that just putting kids in grades and lining them up in a curriculum driven program for skill-based learning, what really kept the joy out of childhood. Mm-hmm. and we were running a school then that was full of joy and mixed age groupings and all kinds of different things going on that were innovative and so i realized that the if i could learn more about child development that i really felt like i could i could build that into a school program in a way that would be recognized as research based and fundamentally sound and not just something you know, going out on a big limb around how to uh, run an, an exciting school. So this sort of in the progressive tradition. Uh, as I learned more and more about development, I got trained as a devel- developmental examiner uh, at the Gazelle Institute when I was uh, a principal. And we used um, their work figuring out how to place children in, in our school in the in the methodology that we wanted to use. And then after about nine years in the school, what was happening with curriculum statewide is sort of the revolving cycle that happens in education. It was back to basics Mm. and uh, there was no room for choice. And it was all about uh, the beginning of test score, dominance, et cetera. A few of us in the school and a few of us outside the school began to come together to talk about a group of about um, four people with a few people coming and going and said, we can do better than this. Let's start a school. Uh, we were gonna be regionalized, and our school was gonna be regionalized with a neighboring school anyhow, in the next year or two. So it was a, a, a good time to make that transition. So we wrote a document and got uh, approved as a 501c3 Educational Foundation in Greenfield, Massachusetts. as. Uh, the Northeast Foundation for Children, which is now called the Center for Responsive Schools. Um, and we gradually put together, by doing it ourselves in this school, what we didn't want to call a program, but rather an approach to mm. teaching and learning. That in time, we, as we began to do workshops and publish books, along with running the school, put a name on it called Responsive Classroom. So that work evolved because we had a team of highly skilled people who came from different venues, Uh, a teacher from Bank Street School of Education who had taught in Harlem, a a secondary educator who taught at Greenfield Community College, an elementary expert who uh, had run her own nursery school and taught kindergarten in the school that I was principal in. We had a a core of people who brought different skills to the work but allowed us then to be trying out these ideas with teachers and schools all over New England to start with. We didn't actually name it Responsive Classroom until many years later when we had a uh, probably 10 years later when we had a number of books, Ruth Charney's book, which was called Teaching Children to Care, and the work of uh, Ellen Doris, who's known in uh, Vermont and and New Hampshire still as an expert in science education, a book called Doing What Scientists Do, uh, was one of our faculty. And then my book, Yardsticks, which grew out of the work with Gazelle, became uh, when we had those books in line... Then we began to be noticed in our work with with the schools that we were working with in New England. Interestingly, the Washington, D.C. public schools got word of us. We went down to do some work with them, talk with their superintendent, assistant superintendent for early childhood education, and realized when we were going into the first very important meeting with them, we didn't know what we were going to call this thing. So. A hotel room, you know, the day before those stories that live with you in infamy. Um, we tossed around a bunch of ideas, ran down to the coffee shop, and came in with a, a, a proposal that said the responsive class.
0: You mentioned the once again the innovation and. And you also mentioned earlier the the five-year-old child that never gives up inside of you. What feeds that child? What feeds that innovation for you? What gives you the energy to keep wanting to do those things?
1: I think two things. I think a spiritual drive and a focus on social justice. I grew up in an all-white community, but when I graduated from high school, I took a, a job one summer in New Hampshire, actually, at summer camps that were run by the Morningside Community Center in Harlem had 400 uh, African-American children and staff in the beautiful woods of southern New Hampshire and lakes and streams. And it transformed me uh, as a young person. It was a gift from somewhere because uh, that led me to go on to My work that I did being at Howard University and then with the National Urban League in Washington and New York um, before I turned my eyes to education. And those uh, seven or so years during the height of the civil rights movement, um, I entered them with this gift of having spent that that time immersed in the African-American culture and the heart of understanding the challenges that lay ahead for so many people. In education, I've always felt that, and I think responsive classroom um, mirrors the, the tremendous need to integrate social and academic learning. Um, I, I don't like particularly the rise to power of the SEL focus, because I think it's a dichotomy that falsely divides learning. Uh, the the great anthropologist Barbara Rogoff said we learn for social reasons we learn in order to be effective in the world oh. all, all children that's what they do Whether, whatever culture they're moving into they're learning to tr- figure out how to be effective in that culture mm-hmm. or, or in a broader, a broader multicultural experience and to th- sort of say that we have to catch up with the SEL work is is a convenient way to say that we have to pay homage to it within the strong academic-driven, test-driven society that we have um, become, Mm. uh, which is, is doing such damage in uh, underserved communities. That continues to drive me, my, th- this idea of saying that social and academic learning should never be separated if we are to have a true democratic society. Responsive classroom, I believe, has at its heart two major components that Ruth Jarney talked about. One is that we, we need to teach for nonviolence. We need to teach for nonviolence is a much stronger thing to say. Than to say we need social and emotional learning in my book. Mm-hmm. And um, also that we need to be able to be able to differentiate what children really need in their learning based on a better understanding of the of the cultures that they come from, a better understanding of how we as white people communicate with the children that we teach because the teaching forces. Predominantly white, predominantly female. How do we help people focus on how to make learning meaningful with choices that fit into what children know, not a medical model that focuses on what children don't know?
0: As you state the piece around social and academic being paired, I think of those people in, in analogy, those people who say they're apolitical. I don't want to deal with politics or then you can't survive in society because everything is, in, is interacting with politics. That's a part of the war. And I think that the same thing goes into education. You can't really do education without the social component.
1: One more quick thing about that that just triggered for me is that I always used to hear this phrase that, that, edu- that the schoolhouse is the cradle of democracy. So the other thing about responsive classroom was about creating responsive classrooms as little communities where every voice in that community is heard and respected. And and uh, that, that that is uh, that, that is a critical part of modeling the democracy that we want in the civil society. And we can see how far away we've come from that as we experience the world around us today as American citizens. So I, I, I just think that that notion of continuing to teach for democracy is a is a really really important thing and it led me to the next piece of my work which was how to work on that mm. powerfully in the adult community of schools where that shared community is often fractured by hierarchy instead of democracy
0: do do you think that that leads to hesitancy from uh, educators to want to talk about social emotional concepts in their classroom, like what what holds us back from doing that because it seems so obvious that we should be doing those things, and yet those things don't occur.
1: Well, I think that the um uh, a pacing chart does in other words, mm-hmm. what we have now are curricula that uh, require teachers to be on page sixty four in <laughs> the math curriculum on Tuesday giving the unit test on Friday, supposing we need to have a problem-solving meeting in the classroom around the way some kids are treating each other on the playground. We won't get to page 62 on a Tuesday, perhaps. And then we will be held accountable for not getting through the curriculum. Mm-hmm. That's the way that teachers feel. Now, I believe that that's something based on a fear Because leadership is so hierarchical, almost like in the military where uh, you don't question your commanders. So I think that it's really hard then for teachers to take the independence uh, and autonomy that they used to have and feel strong enough to use it to say, can't we talk about this as a staff? Mm -hmm. And the leaders themselves don't feel strong enough to say, we need to talk about this as a staff often, and to really have the courage to to build a community that might not follow the direct mandates of the hierarchy of the Department of Education or uh, whatever, whoever they're working under, their superintendent, their school board. And I think that that's where I connect with what John Lewis called good trouble. You got to get in trouble. And you gotta get in good trouble. My, my, I remember this to my first supervisor in graduate school, um, in social work. My supervisor said, "If you don't get fired from one job, you'll never be a good you'll never be a good social worker."
0: I I love that phrase in good trouble because m- myself and Jim were chatting before we you joined us and we were looking through the answers that you'd given us at one point. And I, w- I was reflecting to Jim, I was recently uh, uh, watching a video and it was talking about scientific innovation, scientific newness. And I think that it's paralleled with social uh, innovation also, that it took someone to go against the norms, to push against the norms that were existing and go against the status quo and challenge it in some way. And I think that Th- that good trouble notion.
2: Chip, you once said, and I think it was when I met you several years ago that there was a superintendent or someone that said that I I wouldn't hire you for dog catcher. And you were <laughs> currently a principal at the time. <laughs> and that quote came to mind when you shared that because I there's certain people I wouldn't want to be hired by. It's probably why I've always <laughs> hired myself. It seems like my told Phil that years some time ago at a different podcast.
0: talking about now the connection between yourself chip and high five maybe jim you could share how the connection began and then mm-hmm. chip will follow up with what parallels you think there are between our work and what draws you to work and connect with high five
2: well it was years ago we were i'd always known about the responsive classroom and read about it and had seen your book chip and others and my wife actually the in she's a retired school teacher now but she attended one of the week-long trainings for responsive classroom because the town in which we live in in Vermont required that of t- of teachers so when she took that job on even as a veteran teacher she went to it and we could never get much information about it I remember contacting them and you know said could we attend a workshop and no you you couldn't because you had to be part of a school or whatever it might be so it was always a little bit of a mystery and then the the work came up with the Irving elementary school in Irving, Massachusetts. Uh, the principal was uh, Jim Trill at the time. And he innocently said, he is, we, we'd love to have you. We were going to do some staff development work with his faculty and staff. And he said, but I have a person who's going to join us. He's a consultant with us. And, you know, do you mind if he's present and comes along? And I said, sure. You know, who, who, who is it? And he, he said, well, it's, it's Chip Wood, the uh, one of the co-founders of the Responsive Classroom, and I just had a smile to myself to say I've been trying to meet this person or find some connection with the Responsive Classroom and the work that you and others did, and uh, never would have envisioned it came about came, would come about so almost haphazardly or fortuitously. And then we met that first year at Irving, and I think two more years after that, and it just began to be a, a delightful and very enjoyable beginning of a connection and a relationship that has now led to the work you're doing with us at High Five and just uh, fascinating how things take place. You, you you don't predict how they're going to unfold, but uh, I would never have expected that's how we would first encounter one another.
1: Going back in my history to uh, outdoor leadership, when I started first started doing the work with Jim and, and your staff at Northfield Mountain in those sessions with the Irving with the Irving faculty, it just brought back so many memories for me in terms of when we fir- were first starting the Greenfield Center School and, and responsive classroom. We had the wonderful opportunity to work with someone who was a lot of fun in outdoor education, Larry Buell, who's a child Uh, He had one of his children in our school when it first began, so he became sort of an advisor to us about the outdoors, and uh, we all did a lot of training with him and rope scores training and all that kind of stuff that you guys do, overnight experiences. We took all of our classes out overnight, early uh, in their school experience so that they got a chance to do the things that a lot of outdoor programs do of, you know, building Classroom communities, you do as well, building classroom community strength in the outdoors and hoping that they can bring it back indoors with them when they get back into school. It, it helped us to really think about how important the outdoors was and that to never, never lose it. So a, a lot of the things that we worked on uh, after that experience in, in, in our school, what was the meaning of recess, for instance? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what kinds of things could go on at recess besides um, the things that we you don't want to have going on at recess. And uh, how can you have people who are considered assistants not be the only people on the playground? that Children need to see their teachers on the playground, even if it isn't in the union contract and that they need to see their teachers in the lunchroom, even if it isn't in the union contract, because otherwise you break the trust between student and teachers because the students get it right away. Oh, this isn't important. Mm -hmm. I can, this person only yells at us on the playground or blows a whistle on the playground instead of being a partner in, in our play. We did a lot of that work in schools and people loved it. They loved doing the, Um, when we would do our week long summer workshops, the time they enjoyed the most was recess because we, we taught it and we, we did the kind of games when, when we were playing the, I don't know what you called it, Jim, but the last time we were together, that car game where you have to drive people around, um, with your eyes closed,
2: car car and driver,
1: car and driver. I just, I mean, it came right back. Oh, I remember this. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, When people ask me, "Can you tell in one sentence? Can you tell me about responsive classrooms?" I always would say, "Yep, we took summer camp and we dropped it down in the middle of public school. That was because um, I took my camp experiences and my early center school experiences, and um, and now all the all the work that you have done in adventure leadership." moving that into the leadership realm connected to all that philosophy is sort of where I've come to from the opposite direction, which is to take all to taking all that philosophy, putting it into in-school programs, and then into the adult community building mm-hmm. in schools through the work of Parker Palmer and my training with him as a facilitator for reflection. And deep trust in a school community that has to be involved in not just sitting around and talking or listening to each other, but also engaging in action, like fun outdoor games or singing or other kinds of of, of protocols that that are not in the head alone. And so it felt it felt to me as I began to as we began to connect that, um, and Jim, as you and I talked about how. You know, there just isn't enough time to reach into a community like Irving with just the outdoor adventure stuff. It doesn't hold. And I I've found that to be so true that if you're doing a facilitated reflective workshop with a school, it doesn't hold because there's so many other outside demands. Uh, it seemed really simpatico. Uh, I felt like when you were talking... Feel about innovation. I felt like, well, here is a place where I I can step into a community of innovators and and join the conversation.
2: Well, it met a great need for us too, in terms of you know part of the work that you're seeing as soon now with the Edge of Leadership in the Keene, New Hampshire schools, and having that fully integrated. Our home base is is basically their classroom. They. They only come to the outdoors, sort of bookending their their year long experience with us, and that's purposeful. So that the the community of learners that gathers in the room, whatever the shape of the room is, and whether it has windows or no windows, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Is that that's where we want to do our work to promote that kind of integration that you spoke of. You know that all learning is social learning, and it's a combination of academic and social, and that's in its finest form. So the. As we continued to have conversations, it just was enriching us so much as a staff in terms of the way you've integrated that over the years. And uh, it just did seem like a, a very fortuitous finding of one another, you know, in the organization. So we, we've greatly appreciated and look forward to growing together, too. We still have gas left in these tanks, I think that's <laughs> isn't that the expression. A friend of mine used to say that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It, it's it struck me as you were you were describing um, recess chip that there's something I I recently shared it in another podcast episode and it's a simple notion that we do at high five very often is we eat meals together when we when we show it to groups that often seems extremely innovative, <laughs> extremely different, <laughs> which is an uh, which is interesting to us but. I think that I, I mentioned the interacting with groups when they're here and actually eating meals with them, not separating that as a isolated, now I can take my break. I remember when I dipped my toe into teaching early on in England, and in order to get my foot in the door, I became a teaching assistant for a couple of years, which I think in the in the States is often referred to as a para-educator, I believe. Well, what I found was unique is because I was new, I was put on recess duty, which meant that I had to stand essentially guard it seemed like for uh, to split up potential fights. But what I did was I actually would play with the kids and it was, I was put into that position because I was new whilst all the others would sit in a staff room and eat lunch as a, a group of adults. But what I was finding partly it might've been because I was younger too, but I was connecting with those kids in a far bigger way than any of the other teaching assistants at the time. Like those kids wanted to speak to me, but they would see me outside of the blocked space of time that they would normally associate seeing me in and I actually played with them and so I I, I bring that still to the work that I do today because I feel that that there was something I was doing then which I couldn't identify at the time which I'm better at identifying now which is exactly what you were stating which is the social component of education I was engaging them in a social experience.
1: We did community meals so that the children um, sat at table they didn't go through a cafeteria line mm. and the food was brought out just like summer camp. The uh, food is brought out mm-hmm. um, and shared. And that lasted until the State Department said, no, you can't do that because uh, you have to have, you know, an ounce of green beans on every tray and you have to make sure the children are meeting the nutritional blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, we did that until we couldn't. And then when I got to another school in the 2000s, uh, what I did was right away reverse the schedule so that recess preceded lunch uh, because um, I, I, I never could figure out why you would eat and then go out and play where you would probably throw up some of that lunch and many times on the mm-hmm. playground or whatever. It, it just didn't make any sense that you go, went from your classroom to to a place where you wouldn't be supervised well and um, you would eat your lunch and, things would get all upset and then you'd go out and try to play it off. But usually there'd be a lot of tussles and things on the playground. So interestingly, it took us about, and I used to write about that for responsive classroom also. So it was eventually the department of agriculture, USDA, um, put out a, a, a bulletin about uh, recess before lunch and all the good reasons why that should happen. <laughs> but so that, that was a little victory. We, But in terms of eating in in both schools, I ate with the children as the principal I I had you know I had a principal's table so the kids would rotate through it so mm. I would really get to know the children in the school in a way that I wouldn't if I was in my office you know eating my apple because I didn't have any time to do anything else uh, I just made it part of, of, of the work that I did and that's how people have people have to have principal tables in their school because it's just You've got to be seen as a human being and not just the place you go when you get in trouble, Um, even if it's good trouble. I
2: think I've shared this with Phil before. There was a book some years ago called, called Crisis Point by Tom Daschle, who was a senator and Trent Lott. And one was Republican, one was Democrat. And they were talking about Crisis Point in Washington as it relates to people relating and connecting. And one of the things they pointed to was the doing away of the Senate dining room. And they said when they did away with the dining room, there was no longer a way where you just showed up and ate sort of, as they say, across the aisle or with someone from across the aisle and shared a meal and shared a thought and an idea or whatever, disagreement, whatever it might be. And I I thought it was fascinating. And it's it's one of those things that so many things that we're talking about, these simple things camp to school. And you absolutely you, you can't couch it in those terms because it doesn't look legitimate enough. So you wrap it in different different things. When we do business work, we wrap some of our very humanistic approaches to people connecting in, in different terms. And they, they think it's more important that way, I guess. But in the end, it does come down to such simple things like people enjoying each other, having a meal together, having a conversation and all of that happening And you know academically rich settings or socially rich settings. It's all the same, but fascinating that meals become that important.
0: As we look towards the future of education, what gives you hope? What makes you feel optimistic?
1: Well, the most of all, I I would say, is that I think it's become very clear to parents and politicians alike that teachers matter, that teachers hold the thread of the country together. I have a, I'm looking up at my bulletin board right now to a bumper sticker that I never put on a car because I had to keep it on my bulletin board, it says, it's too bad that the people who know how to run the country are busy teaching school. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the parents of this country have come to a full realization that they're not teachers. And I would hope that parents would, um, that they are their children's first teachers. Absolutely. But that they need to, re- and I think they many of them do and more so now appreciate the power of the teacher to hold a group of children for 7 hours a day in a respectful learning environment that makes life meaningful for them and allows life to be meaningful for the parents while their children are in a trusting in a trusted place for the most part and that's not to say that schools are perfect by any stretch of the imagination but it is to say that we have we have seen how how in fact teachers are essential workers but that we do not respect them as essential workers we do not pay them as essential workers and so my, my i have a great hope that teachers once it is safe and once we do return to um, a society where things are are more reach toward a, a new normal of understanding for each other, that teachers will rise up in the ranks of, prof- of the professional level of society to be seen as doctors and at the level of, of, of importance to the future of communities and, and countries as well. Um, I guess the other thing that I, I feel really hopeful about is we've we've seen in the months that we've been on Zoom and and uh, meetings such as these uh, between teachers and children in the, in their homes that we've seen teachers do things they probably never thought they were gonna do, which is to learn the technology and be able to communicate with their children in a way that um, it hasn't been a perfect at all, but they'll continue to do the work, to do what it takes to connect in, in ways that are meaningful uh, for children beyond the classroom. So just as people are talking about broadening the role of working with in the community from not just the police, but the, from, for social workers and, and people who are skillful counselors to be able to work with families around difficult situations, I think the same thing is true, uh, and I have a lot of hope for what I would call distributive leadership in schools, that principals will realize that they didn't make this stuff happen between March and now. Mm-hmm. The teachers really did. There were mandates for what the, that they were supposed to be doing, but the teachers really did. Just as when principals are, are, are in doing observations and, and judging what teachers do that's a small slice of what teachers do day in, day out with their kids all day long throughout a school year. And those teachers are ready to be teacher leaders, not just to be um, thought pigeonholed into one particular role. And the re- and I came to that understanding through listening to your podcast about hockey. And actually, just this morning, I, I, I came to this understanding that we need to make schools more like hockey teams seriously i um so i just I did you know, not make him say that <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> i am going i i i I wanted to n- note that in in hockey teams, hmm. and you all guys all know this, probably you've d- talked about this with maybe you do it talk with the hockey teams about it, but you hockey teams right they have lines and they have shifts and they have penalties, and they have goalies and everybody plays a different role uh, depending on the need in the community at the time on the ice and off the ice i'm sure but the, it's, the, it, it's the it's the it's the distributed leadership of a hockey team is probably the most distributed leadership of any team sport i know and, and i'm i would assume from what i heard on that podcast that the successful ones are the ones who aren't out for star power mm but for team and I'm hopeful and that in working with you, I can learn how to be a good hockey player.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still hoping on that too, but I agree. I think that me learning about hockey, not having that in my, in my country to the same extent, I was immediately surprised when I was speaking to some of the coaches and said, Oh yeah, they don't go in the locker room and they don't talk to the players before the games. Like the players control that space. They exactly, as you say, distribute the leadership amongst all of them instead of this person coming in with a flip chart and saying, you, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. They coach them and train them and then they let them figure it out. And I think that's uh, that's unique to me in terms of seeing sports because you always see this figurehead of this coach or the manager is in control. And I was kind of surprised that I remember saying that to Jim at the first, like, really, they don't go in the locker room? (laughs) Strange to me.
2: I thought in this podcast we might win over some teachers. I had no idea we're probably winning over every hockey player in the country as well.
0: Uh, so thank, thank you so much for taking the time, Chip, and joining us. For those listeners who are listening to this and saying, oh, I wish we could uh, ask more, or wish we could have gone deeper in some areas, that is certainly the plan with Chip. So this so hopefully won't be a one-off thing that you're listening to, and we will be able to delve into some of the things that he talked about and tap into his his uh, massive experience in the field of education. So uh, thank you, Chip, for taking the time and, and connecting with us.
1: I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, guys.
2: Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcamp.
0: And then, what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks
2: for giving us a pasta guy. <laughs> <laughs>